Welcome to Swift Unwrapped, a weekly podcast about the Swift programming language and other projects at Swift.org. I'm Jesse Squires. And I'm JP Smart. Uh, and today we're joined uh, by a couple of guests, uh, Vincent and Kelvin. Uh, if you guys want to introduce yourselves. Hey, um, my name's Kelvin, and um, I'm an iOS developer at a company called Applied Digital. Uh, I work there as an iOS developer, and we're an agency that does um, uh, client work. So I'm also part of the RayWenderlich.com team, and I help manage the Swift Algorithm Club project. Uh, recently, we actually wrote a book on data structures and algorithms in Swift, and this is just a book for the most common and useful data structures and algorithms. Um, for instance, if you went to school, you'd learn about linked lists, graphs, and trees. And this book is about those data structures. And it goes through a step-by-step -step process in implementing each of them with explanations and discussions about time complexity. Interesting. And Vincent, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah. Hey, everyone. I'm Vincent, and I'm an iOS developer as well, and I currently work at Capital One. And also on the side, I work at RayWendelich.com as well, and um, used to write iOS um, development tutorials. Now I'm um, recently moved over to data structures and algorithms with Calvin to work on the uh, Swift Algorithm Club. Yeah, well, the uh, the book's um, really exciting. It's nice to see uh, a Swift focus on those more computer science uh, concepts uh, being applied. And um, you know, I think it's it's something that would make uh, the folks at Apple, who've been championing Swift as kind of an educational uh, language, uh, or at least like a good language to learn programming with, um, it would make them very happy of like kind of furthering that goal. Would you say that you agree? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think our initial goal is to um, write a book that, uh, actually before that, I think uh, a really popular book in data structures and algorithms is a Cracking the Coding Interview book. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of people read that to prepare for the interviews. But um, in the Swift space, there isn't a book that bridges from going from nothing to being able to understand the concepts in the Cracking the, the Coding Interview book. So our book is, um, we'll try to bridge that gap in knowledge by discussing about the elementary data structures that you need to know before you can really understanding that cracking the coding interview book. Right. You feel like the, the coding interview book is more of a just kind of rote memorization, like not a real focus on understanding uh, the details. Yeah. And we also walk you through step-by-step step, um, how it all works. So it's clear and understandable. That's great. And um, would you say like, who's this book targeted for? Um, would uh, would it be mostly for folks who have never programmed before, folks who have programmed in one other language, or like can someone who's um, uh, an experienced Swift developer still get something out of this book? Yeah, I think it definitely needs um, a background in one or two language, one language at least, and preferably Swift, because 
we don't dive into like how the Swift language works. We just dive right into the data structures and algorithms, assuming that you know you're fairly competent in Swift. Um, <clears throat> I think the main target audience would be beginners at data structures and algorithms, like for people that, uh, for instance, took data structure and algorithm courses a long time ago, or even haven't taken them at, at all. So these are the people that need to know how linked lists works or binary trees or graphs. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the, those are the people we're trying to target. Sure. So maybe this would be a good um, follow-up to Apple's official Swift programming language book. Um, you know, maybe start with that ebook and then do you view this as like a good second book if you're like trying to learn Swift? Oh yeah, definitely. Cool. So you just mentioned a few data structures that uh, you cover in the book. Um, what are some of the other data structures that uh, that you want to talk about today? And and there's also more of an algorithm side to this as well, which obviously ties uh, very closely into the data structures uh, that are discussed. Oh yeah, um, I think one of the things that is interesting is to talk about um, what data structures and algorithms that we can consider adding to the Swift standard library and what don't make sense to be added into the standard library. Right. Would you say that there's kind of a general rule of thumb there where you would draw that line of something that uh, would belong in the standard library versus something that um, ha for some good reason should actually be built by consumers of the language rather than built in? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I think um, a few rules about adding um, data structures in the standard library. One, they have to have value semantics. Um, all the current data structures in the standard library currently have value semantics, and it'd be quite weird to deviate from that convention. Um, they also have to be, or it would be nice to, for them to adopt the Swift collection protocols, that being sequence collection, bidirectional collection, random access collection, mutable collection, and the range replaceable collection protocols. So um, if they can adopt those, that's probably like the baseline requirement for them to be uh, candidates for the Swift standard library. Um, in regards to what doesn't, what disqualifies them from the standard library, I think the general consensus is the implementation implementation detail needs to be good enough, and um, anything you just learn from like your school is probably not good enough to fit into the Swift standard library. In terms of performance, you mean performance or, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What about um, you know some of these structures um, that don't exist now, like? trees and other graph type uh, data structures, the existing protocols are probably somewhat uh, not well suited um, for those. Although I don't, I don't think that's necessarily an argument against adding um, a tree-like data structure to the standard lib. But I think that that would require adding potentially additional protocols, right? Yeah. Um, regarding trees in particular, I don't think we'd see any 
tree implementations in the standard library anytime soon. Like, you wouldn't just find a binary search tree that you can just use right out of the box. I mm -hmm. don't think that is going to be something that would be added anytime soon. Yeah, what's interesting is that um, uh, internally, the Swift standard library definitely uh, implements several of these um, type of data structures and algorithms. Uh, they just don't package them up for external use necessarily. Um, so there's obviously value, and I mean, there wouldn't be value in, in these data structures and algorithms, um, it, or if there wasn't value, you wouldn't have written a book about it. Uh, and so then the question kind of becomes, um, you know, how valuable is it? How common is it for a consumer of the Swift language to want to use something like that? And how straightforward is it for someone to implement this on their own? Like, are there a lot of um, uh, potential edge cases that uh, people would implement this like in a naive way would end up missing? And if so, then you know potentially there is value in adding to the Swift standard library, even if it does kind of push the boundaries of what's traditionally been in the standard library so far. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. Um Back to tree data structures, um, as you said, they, they probably have some form of tree data structure um, that's being used for um, some reason. But uh, I think you, consumers won't get it as a public interface. Um, instead, they'll be used internally for data structures such as uh, sorted set, sorted dictionary, or sorted arrays, something that's um, hides the usage of the tree itself and just presents a very favorable interface for uh, most Swift developers. Uh, for instance, a uh, sorted set or sorted dictionary uh, would probably be backed by a try data structure, which is a form of a tree. You wouldn't directly use the try, but a try is being used to build a sorted set or a sorted dictionary. Right, and then as a, as a consumer of the language, if you need um, a data structure that has try-like semantics, then you can use the higher-level wrapper that does abstract away from it and perhaps doesn't provide the same performance guarantees throughout the board, but gets you most of the way there? Yeah, that sounds fair. Yeah, I guess there's also the question of how much extra value does uh, a particular data structure add over what you what's currently available. For example, uh, a linked list, it's, you know, you can use the existing data structures to still model whatever you're trying to do, uh, potentially. Um, it's like how much extra value does that linked list actually add to the standard lib? Is it, uh, does it just bloat that API service uh, you know, because perhaps it's not common enough. Yeah, I think the linked list is a great example of what we want to be careful of adding. Um, to elaborate, I think linked lists, at least a traditional implementation that you learned in school, is not suitable for the Swift standard library. Um, and that just goes to um, what I said earlier that any trivial data structure or tr any trivial implementation of the data structure is probably not suitable. And it has to do with um, 
these data structures not being able to leverage this, the modern memory architectures that we have today. Um, for instance, linked lists, is, they're, they're known for being great at inserting or deleting uh, elements from you know, the head or the tail of the collection, and also maybe in the um, anything in the middle. Uh, like for instance, arrays are, are terrible at mutations because if you if you remove an element at the front of the array, the subsequent elements have to shift shift to the left and take that empty space up, and that is an O of n operation. Linked lists don't trigger that if you remove from just the end one one of the ends, and that might be a cause of. I mean. There's a hidden cost to the linked list that you might not necessarily uh, take note of, and that's the concept of having cache misses. Um, so uh, you know how the modern memory architecture we have we have CPUs with uh, cache for the CPU specifically for the CPU, and then we have the RAM for the computer. And when we fetch an element in an array, for example, um, the CPU actually fetches uh, a couple of more elements around that single element and stores that and caches it into the L2 cache, which is the CPU cache. And uh, accessing uh, subsequent elements um, of that element that are stored in the cache, those can be really quick. But if you use a linked list, accessing subsequent elements of a linked list has to reach into this RAM that isn't fast to access. So linked lists can't benefit from this uh, caching behavior. Um, and if we do implement this linked list into the standard library, because it's such a general data structure, um, I think there's going to be a lot of misuse um, for a lot of uh, programmers that don't uh, take that into account. Yeah, to your point on um, on kind of the, the trivial or maybe naive implementation of a data structure generally not being uh, what would happen in the standard library, um, I think the behavior that you described on removing an element from an array uh, being an O of N uh, time complexity operation only applies to contiguous array in Swift. Whereas um, the the straight Swift dot array um, is a little smarter about its implementation and can uh, doesn't need to reshuffle all of the elements in memory. And when you're removing something, say like earlier in the array, it basically just kind of leaves a hole there, so that the next array that gets next element that gets added gets put in that in that same place. Um, oh, that's that's interesting to know. Um, but Vincent, have you can you? Uh elaborate on that? Because I think you did some research about um, how contiguous arrays uh, uh, work against like arrays. Um. I think something about contiguous arrays having the same uh, performance, except for some certain situations in comparison with the array. Not actually sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, this, this stuff is... Uh, is constantly shifting from underneath us too, right? And um, you know, benchmarking will only get you so far when you're trying to understand the the performance uh, implications of something. Where 
you know, it might scale differently depending on the number of items, you know, the distribution of those items, et cetera, how you perform the mutation. Um, so, uh, so yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. I mean, like what we've seen recently, just generally speaking, uh, like we, what we talked about uh, a few episodes ago, the behavior of escaping closures changing uh, due to new optimizations in uh, Swift 5, the issue with bridging to Objective-C. Also recently, like the hashing algorithm uh, changes, like the what's backing, uh, like dictionary and set and how those work. So it's, yeah, constantly moving, right? Constantly moving, but the standard library protocols on on collections do provide some um, time complexity guarantees, sure. right? Yeah. Um, so can you, since you, you wrote a book on this, can you elaborate on, on how those are used and what protocols you might come into or bump into that provide those time complexity guarantees for operations? Yeah, sure. I think... In terms of time complexity guarantees, random access collection is the only one that like fully guarantees that, or infor- like you have to enforce those time complexities. For the rest of the other ones, I think the documentation states that uh, it should be like O of one or O of n, but if it's not, it's okay. Just make sure you document that clearly to the user. Um, for example, uh, in the sequence method, um, calling reverse on the collection is an O of N operation. It does that uh, eagerly. Um, but if you if that collection adopts the bidirectional collection protocol, then the reversed method becomes a constant time operation. But what you get is not actually a reversed version of that collection, but an actually a wrapper around the reversed uh, collection with a reversed iterator. Right. Um, right. So those, those guarantees are still being provided. There's always a way to um, satisfy the API as far as the compiler is concerned, but not provide those, not, not uh, fulfill those guarantees. Uh, but then you probably shouldn't be conforming to that protocol. Yeah, that's a fair thing to say. Right, and I think Ola Begeman had a good article on this, on how interfaces and, and protocol requirements are more than just making it compile. They have semantic meaning sometimes. Right. Uh, and in this case, they have time complexity implications. Yeah, I think the term he used was uh, protocols are not, quote, bags of syntax, right? It, it's not just syntactical things, it's semantical meaning. I agree. So, so far, I think we've spoken mostly about data structures. Are there any interesting algorithms, perhaps um, some algorithms based on that wouldn't require introducing new data structures to Swift that could potentially be good candidates for being ported to the Swift standard library? I mean, obviously, bubble sort should be in the standard <laughs> library. Well, you could create an extension on um, collection protocols to adopt the uh, binary search um, algorithm instead of the normal O of N search time? Um, that requires the collection to be already sorted, though, correct? Right. right. And so and, uh, how how would you expose an API for this? I, I think it has to be uh, a specialization on the Swift, Swift collection protocols for the sorted collections that might be added 
um, in the future. Because um, I, I ran into an interesting uh, thread about a proposal adding link lists and doubly link lists into the standard library recently. And Ben Cohen um, wrote a comment about um, him adding a Jira ticket for sorted collections, which are like sorted set, sorted dictionary, and the sorted array. So if those come into play, uh, algorithms like the binary search can be extended on the Swift collection protocols to be specialized for these sorted collection types. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, and it does it it does imply kind of a certain amount of overhead that uh, comes with that safety, right? Where you can definitely implement a binary sort on or a binary search on um, the existing collections, but they they require the user to be very diligent about it being actually sorted and the APIs won't actually help you in that. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, adding it just in the Swift collection protocol without like a, uh, what they call it, like conditional or condi conditional extensions? Conditional like, conformance. Conditional conformance. It, it, it'd be probably a bad idea because you're going to have people that are don't know how to use it and use it incorrectly and that could lead to simply the wrong results mm -hmm. i suppose one option would be to sort a copy and search that copy and return the result but that would not be very efficient uh you could document that that's the behavior on these things i suppose but yeah, I've definitely made use of uh, some binary search uh, in some of my Swift projects, but um, you know, I've tried to uh, expose as little of that functionality externally uh, um, directly as much as possible because it requires a full control over the internal state. Um, and if any external consumer would kind of miss interpret that, then it would make the results of the binary search entirely irrelevant. And, um, you know, this is done in a way that avoids the eager sort or the just-in-time sort before doing a binary search, uh, which is obviously quite expensive. Um, so, yeah. I, I mean, this leads us to, to an interesting question, which is so far Swift, um, when, when the term safety was used to describe Swift, Swift as a safe language, that's mostly... Uh, as far as it relates to uh, memory safety. But here, I think we're kind of peeking into an interesting world where perhaps safe and swift might also mean kind of encouraging safe or correct usage of algorithms and data structures. Um, do, is that something you agree with? Yeah, I agree with it. So do you see a way where Swift can um, can increase kind of its safety when it comes to encouraging correct use of data structures and algorithms? Uh, I think I think the strategy for that is simply not allowing users to use them incorrectly, which is one of the methods is not just simply add not simply adding the binary search for everyone to use, but only as a conditional conformance uh, feature for types that always work with binary search, such as the sorted collections. Mm -hmm. 
Right. There are a number of um, foundation APIs that will throw uh, an NS internal consistency exception if you misuse them. And it seems like so far Swift has really tried to avoid um, having any sort of APIs that are uh, that rely too much on runtime checking like that for misuse and try and bake that into the type system. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, the main area where you see that kind of behavior is uh, precondition checks on certain methods. Uh, for example, um, uh, indexing into an array, you'll have like a precondition that the index you're querying uh, is less than the length, for example, right? So you you would crash there. There was actually a discussion on the uh, Swift forums a while back about, uh, I can't remember who started this discussion now, but uh, this idea about um, calling fun certain methods in the standard library that do crash in certain conditions. And uh, it was this discussion on like safety and how to... And, and sort of like naming, like, like how can you tell if this uh, particular method will crash with invalid inputs? And I think Ben Cohen responded, like, you know, saying, well, the alternative is to, like, I don't know, fail gracefully in some way or have some other kind of name for this. But really, these precondition checks are, um, should be viewed as, like, user error, like programmer error, like asserts, basically, where you really shouldn't be hitting these. Um, and uh, yeah, it was a, an interesting discussion on that. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. Yeah, specifically for indexing into an array, um, that's somewhat of a code smell if you're um, kind of using an external index so, for example, an int just like any flat integer and indexing into an array with that, um, you're not actually getting those indexes from the array itself. You're getting it from an external source. Um, and that's a little bit of a code smell. I mean, there are times when it's unavoidable. But for the most part, if you can derive kind of which indices are available, um, then you avoid the risk for this altogether. Right, and so perhaps um, there is a way to restructure your code so you avoid having this disconnected uh, index source, mm -hmm. and instead the indices only come from the array itself. And this is where collection dot index. Um, it was somewhat nice to have it be an opaque type, uh, or at least like a, a type alias before where. Um, it made it a little harder to construct uh, a source of indices that was coming from an entirely different place, uh, which is less safe. Yeah, that's a very interesting uh, discussion. Um, do Do you know if um, do you know what the behavior is if you grab an index from like let's say a string and then try to index it on a different string? Um, so that actually works, um, right? Because they're the same type. 
um, which is also an unsafe thing to do. Uh, like I really wouldn't uh, encourage you to take the index from a string dot index from one string and try and read a character at a given index on another string. There are a number of other APIs that are better suited for for doing that. Uh, but really, like, what are you trying to do if you're trying yeah. to, you know, map an index from one string to another? Um, so string has all of these APIs for, like, uh, different views into different encodings of that same string. But it doesn't use collection APIs to perform this translation. It uses string protocol-specific APIs for that. Oh, interesting. Uh, anyway, we're, we're kind of deviating a little bit here, but... Um, uh, are there any other interesting data structures or algorithms that uh, that you might want to discuss here? I don't think so. Not at the moment. So I have a question, um, uh, and and this is um, uh, this is really just kind of satisfying a personal curiosity of mine. Um, do you explore in the book at all? Uh, the possibility of building lockless data structures in Swift. So data structures that allow for some um, parallel or concurrent operations, typically mutating operations, without uh, introducing an expensive locking uh, for the resource management. Uh, unfortunately, no. Um, we don't cover uh, building thread-safe data structures in the book. Um, this is... Uh, more of a beginner book. Okay, well, indulge me for a minute. Do you do you have any kind of ideas or guidance or um, warnings <laughs> against doing this? Because this is an area that I've seen um, very little of in Swift so far. Whereas it's it's highly uh, highly um, relevant, or there are a lot of examples for doing this in C plus plus or in Rust. Uh, but I just haven't seen anything in Swift for this, and I wonder if we're sort of lacking some of the primitives in order to be able to build this. That's a good question that I don't have the ability to answer at the moment. Uh, Vincent, do you have any comments on that? Um, no, we haven't really explored this either, So, but it's good to note down. Maybe we will do that in the future. <laughs> yeah, if you... Uh... If you do any research in, in along these veins, I'd, I'd love to to hear about it just because uh, there's just kind of this big black hole in my mind about how this would work. And I'm, I think that we, we lack a lot of the primitive atomic uh, types in order to really do this um, correctly in Swift without resorting to wrapping some C uh, data structures or APIs um, in order to do it. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, there are other ways to design this, right? Uh, if you, um, you know, I guess there's like one approach where this is built into the data st structure itself, which is what you're suggesting. But if you pull that thread safety aspect out of the structure, uh, where you're just, um, performing all operations on that collection on your own, like dispatch queue, for example, or something, you can get that behavior, right? But... Uh, it's not uh, like built in. Not quite, because then you're still performing locking and serialization. What I'm I lockless see. data structures allow you to 
for some operations, usually not all mutating or even reading operations. Some of them you, you'd still need some resource management around, but for some operations, like for example, maybe it's just inserting an item, mm-hmm. uh, then you don't need any locking whatsoever if the data structure is, is structured in a safe way. I see. And a lot of times this uses kind of pre-allocated memory and perhaps it uses atomic integers or atomic counters to uh, to perform certain operations. Um, and it can leverage kind of some of the modern CPU capabilities in order to avoid some locking. Um, but I just haven't seen any of that for Swift. Yeah, I mean, perhaps Chris's async await proposal is a prerequisite for that. No, I don't no? think so. Okay. I, I think uh, we probably just need some sort of atomic uh, types in the uh, in the Swift standard library. Because mm-hmm. um, if you look at C++ implementations of, of lockless data structures, oftentimes they'll rely on A, pre-allocated memory, um, and B, um, atomic ints generally. Mm-hmm. Interesting. That's currently how... Um static uh, VARs are implemented in Swift, right? So there is some sort of idea of this already. There is, but I don't think it's quite flexible enough. Yeah. Um, so for, for example, like if you have uh, a top-level uh, let in your, um, in your program, mm-hmm. um, something that's at the top scope or a, or a static property on a type, then those will be um, lazy they'll be lazily uh, computed uh, at time of first use in a thread-safe way. Right. Um, but then you can't mutate them from that point on. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's basically like an atomic counter, an atomic integer, where you can only go from zero to one and nothing else. Mm-hmm. And right. so that's useful in some settings, but not fully flexible, I think, to create a lockless data structure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see. I don't know, Vincent, Kelvin, if you have thoughts on this, I'd, I'd love to to hear what you have to say. That makes sense. Getting back to the book, um, uh, and and also just as Swift as an educational language, um, which, you know, no one's actually come out and, and said that, but it has been framed um, by by some people who've worked on the language as it's as being a good first language or something that they'd like to see taught uh, in schools or as a first programming language or being ideally well-suited for coding education. And you see this with this um, uh, Playgrounds for iPad app and uh, the push for coding in, in Apple stores for uh, for people who are new to coding, learn to code, or, or I don't know what the effort's called. Um, mm-hmm. There's like Hour of Code. Hour of Code, that's right. right. Yeah. Um, so do you think Swift is well-suited for learning these kinds of computer science fundamentals like data structures and algorithms? Yeah, um, I mean, Apple has been pushing really big on education so far. And um, I, I believe like last year they um, introduced some kind of curriculum for like high school and college students around the world. And um, there are actually courses out there provided free for, from Apple to um, take to learn how to code in Swift. So, yeah. There's also that, uh, that Apple endorsed iOS university right which one was that never heard of it i don't remember the name but apple endorsed a 
iOS university for yeah I, I vaguely remember that i think it might be in spain or italy yeah yeah i, so, I know they yeah. recently opened like a, um this curriculum for a lot of universities in europe but I, I don't know exactly which ones yeah i guess i'm more saying it not um more just kind of on the uh on the merits of the language alone um mm-hmm. you know do you think people are more or less likely to bump into um like unrelated issues if they're trying to learn data structures and algorithms if they're learning it with say python versus swift well i I think one of the advantages of um programming in swift is like you said the uh, swift playgrounds because um you can just run that on the um, ipad device and you can it's pretty much mobile you can take it anywhere you go so yeah interesting yeah so you see that interactivity as Mm a uh, a positive for um, right. c- kind of learning and these it, fundamental concepts. Yeah, and it opens a lot of doors to like um, a lot of younger kids because um, younger kids aren't really going to um, use computers anymore, right? Um, everything's going mobile now. So um, Swift Playgrounds, I mean, I, th- I think that's a good first step. It opens a lot more doors to kids learning how to code, program. Yeah. So, do you guys have a um, uh, like a playground uh, companion to this book, or is that something that you've thought about uh, doing? Because I could definitely see where, let's say, you have um, uh, a linked list data structure, and then you can like visualize that in a playground somehow, um, uh, like a view based playground and then the user can call operations and then you could maybe see like steps for like what's actually happening when you insert an item in a linked list or um, same with like a some sort of graph structure and uh, searching that graph right i think Calvin, um, we initially when we first planned this um, book, we were thinking about doing some interactive playgrounds, right? Yeah, that that we tried to dabble in in that idea, but it's quite a lot of work. <laughs> sure, <laughs> sure. What were some challenges you guys ran into with that? Um, for that interactive playground. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, time. <laughs> yeah, I think we were mainly focused on um, writing a step-by-step um, guide to each data structure and algorithm first. And then um, maybe in future editions, we probably plan to slowly add more interactive um, playgrounds. But for now, we're just using basic playgrounds to kind of um, show input and output for various data structures and algorithms. Yeah, I could see uh, it being especially useful if you're seeing like a red-black tree rebalance right. itself uh, visually. It might really help um, uh, convey like what it is that this data structure is doing and how is it actually useful by seeing it visually. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that'd be super cool. I wish I had that uh, when I was learning these things in school. Or even as a refresher, you know, yeah. if you haven't thought of it in a while or if you've never thought of it, um, yeah, it's it can be a very powerful tool. Cool. Um, you know, we've talked about the the time complexity aspects of, of APIs and data structures and algorithms. 
you know, is there anything that you can think of that either as a tool or something that's built into the language, maybe as a compiler pass that would help um, identify either places where your APIs aren't uh, providing the same time complexity guarantees as uh, the protocol that you're implementing, or maybe it more as a tool where uh, you'd be able to run it on your code base and identify areas where you can use kind of more optimal uh, algorithms uh, or, or anything like that? Or is it strictly like uh, in the domain of kind of human um, human thought of like having to just think through code? That's a very intriguing question. And I personally don't know how we can deal with that problem, but I'm wondering, is it possible? Because if it was, maybe the Swift language can enforce those time complexity guarantees in those Swift collection protocols when we talked about it earlier. It's something that strikes me as like an NP hard problem to solve fully, but that might have good fuzzy solutions. Uh, you know, like one thing that SwiftLint does is if it detects that you're doing a filter and then calling dot first on that, it'll encourage you to use first where. Um, mm. And oh, like, that's obviously just like a very specialized use case. And same thing for uh, if you're using the count property on collection and comparing it to zero, to a zero literal, it'll encourage you to use is empty so that some collections have have a fast path for that. Um and those are like some very trivial cases. Um, and like, it's obviously possible to add more one by one of those trivial cases. I'm just wondering, you know, maybe there's some uh, computer science research that you're aware of that has investigated, like maybe, um, you know, setting up like a little uh, compiler virtual machine that tries to like reason through the code and see if there's kind of a deterministic way to catch more of these. I don't know if this is um, relevant, but I've mainly used instruments to kind of um, keep track of the times of my different functions. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm always wary of using instruments or any sort of um, uh, instrumented code for doing benchmarks because then you're not benchmarking, you know, a fully optimized release build um, you know, the code like explicitly has a bunch of instrumentation added in as part of the compilation. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I'm always uh, worried of looking at those numbers. They can give you some sort of uh, indication, I think, but uh, definitely to be taken with a grain of salt. Yeah, I, I definitely wouldn't, you know, go screaming to the masses saying, array is slow, because if I remove something and <laughs> C Instruments is telling me that it's taking a long time, well, maybe, you know, you're not necessarily measuring the right thing there. It'll just never remove anything from your race. I yeah. Mean, that's what yeah. I do. The programming just tips by Jesse. Return uh, zero for your hash value. and Never remove elements from an array. Just only, go. just keep adding them in there. And uh, then performance is perfect. Thanks, Jesse. Yeah. Do you want to write an algorithms book? Oh, it would be a great book. Yeah. Yeah. But you I'd would read it. It would only grow in pages, and it would never ship because <laughs> right. every month you'd add another hundred pages, and yeah, you'd never remove anything. 
What's wrong with that? That's it's also how software works, right? <laughs> you, just, you just keep adding lines of code and never ship anything. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, thanks for the advice. <laughs> All right, uh, I think we can wrap up there. Unless you guys have anything else you want to add. I think I'm good here. I think I'm good as well. Cool. Uh, so that's it for the show today. Uh, thanks again to Vincent and Kelvin for joining us. Uh, where can everyone uh, find you guys online and, and find the, the book? You can find me at Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is at Kelvin Lau KL. Yeah, and you can find me at Twitter as well at Vincent Ngo 2 And we'll have a link for the book at raywinderlick.com. Okay, great. Yeah, we'll be sure to put that in the uh, show notes as well. Uh, so you can find me on Twitter, Jesse underscore Squires, and the show at Swift underscore Unwrapped. And I'm at SimJP. If you've enjoyed the show, please do leave a review on iTunes, and you can join the conversation at Spectrum.chat. Thanks for listening. Thanks. All right. Cool. Thanks, Vincent and Kelvin. I was right doing some writing the other day and my Xcode would be crashing like once every 10 yeah. minutes for the last five hours. Oh uh, yeah, that's right. That's like your Apple Watch notification telling you to stand up, right? It's just like, <laughs> yeah, hey, take a break yeah. from programming. I'm right. actually standing. <laughs> it's a health feature.